Hugh, I guess the first question I would have is, I'm reading your biography. It's 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 somewhat similar to mine. I left uh, teaching and then luxury travel, where I was making good money to sort of pursue a project that was more true to to me. And reading your biography, I'm seeing um, uh, you were originally uh, in law, and then management consulting, and then you got into photography, and obviously you've taken it to a real commitment for some of the projects that you've undergone over the years and what you're working on now. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about that transition and, and sort of how did you know in those beginning stages, you know, you were on the right path and you hadn't made a mistake leaving what I imagine is, is a more lucrative career uh, in business when you were first starting. Yeah, look, you never know whether you're on the right path. I mean, no, I won't say that. Um, yeah, it was quite some years before I got a sense of that. And it was probably, um, you know, uh, I studied business and then back end of the business degree, um, my law professor asked me if I'd applied for law and I said no. And he said, well, you probably should. You'd, you'd probably get in. So... I hadn't even thought, thought about doing law at that stage, and and um, so I put an application and got in. Mm. And I, I love studying law. Um, uh, I love studying it, um, but I, I felt also that it could be a fairly um, get, it could get stale fairly quickly as well because you're sitting in an office till ten o'clock at night and just reading cases and and <laughs> yeah. you know for me that wasn't really the the, the gig. So I, there was some management consulting firms that I wanted to work for. There's four, I picked four or five in the world that I wanted to work for. I ended up working with one of those. Um, and I enjoyed the challenge that loved the people because the people are so um, vibrant. They're all smart. Um, and, but then you sort of get to a point where you start to work out the gig in that as well. Like initially the, the cases are really complex and, um, and then you one minute working rail, next minute financial services, next minute oil and gas, whatever it is. Yeah. And um, after a while, it becomes a problem-solving exercise. And once you get the feel and the confidence that you can transition between different industries and different problems, um, then it gets a little bit boring because it's all the same, even though the industries are different. You know, fundamentally, the, the, the jobs are the same. So I, yeah. uh, I had a meeting in Perth um, back in April uh, 1998, um, I took some leave, travelled up to a place called Broome in the Kimberley um, and I don't know how long I spent there, maybe a few weeks and I just decided that it was a remote place and it looked interesting and it was one of the few places in Australia that I'd not really spent any time so I resolved while I was up there to um, kick the job in back in Melbourne um, and, and I decided that when I got back to Melbourne I had to make sure that I followed through with that so... Mm -hmm. Um, I went back to Melbourne um, and then I flew back to Broome, teed up a job and um, then went back to Melbourne again, quit my job and then <laughs> drove up through the Gibson Desert to get to Broome and that was yeah. um, October 1998. Yeah. And I had this sort of feeling that I wouldn't be there for very long so um, I every weekend I'd go out and try and see somewhere different and some weekends I'd drive 
two and a half thousand kilometers in a weekend. I'd drive, I'd leave work at two in the afternoon, drive till two in the morning, get up at five in the morning, and then hike through the gorges in Karajini in, in the in the Pilbara region, and then sometime in Sunday afternoon, I'd do the you know nine and a half, ten hour drive back to Broome. Mm. Um, and I took a camera with me and, you know, the camera had never, it was not something I'd ever studied, never been an ambition. It just, you know, just came along and people started saying you should do something with it. And then I was always sort of edgy about that because um, I felt everything I'd ever done, you know, that um, I'd put a, studied a lot and put a lot of time into, I ended up hating and music was one of those things. And yeah. uh, it took me quite some years and eventually I, I sort of jumped. I took the jump. I think that was 2004, late 2004, I took the jump. But before that, I'd sort of found a way to um, produce my first book. And uh, I'd been sort of sitting in a, in a gorge in the Bungle Bungles in the Kimberley and the Penalulu National Park, as it's called now. And, and I just while I was sitting in that gorge, I came up with a way to fund my first book. And I, I decided to test it on the following Monday when I got to work and just rang up four potential targets and I had a 75% hit rate out of that four, which is pretty good. So that first book was on its way and mm-hmm. it sort of things just went from there and it wasn't probably until, um, I don't know, maybe last three, four years, I've genuinely felt that this is the right space for me, you know, because up until all the, all the consulting and stuff that I'd done, the manager consulting and the corporate tax had, never really felt right and um I, th- I think in some ways that's a good thing because when you're feeling edgy like that it, it's usually telling you that you need to be looking into other things yeah it's certainly something where reading some of what you've written that there's definitely a philosophy that that would be hard for any sort of corporate job to contain um the line i'm i'm staring at now which is to me it's it's really moving Compared to, um, compared to a lot of what's out there, at least on Instagram, um, <laughs> and I think you'll you might know the quote I'm talking about if you hear Instagram. It says, um, from from your site, it's my life's goal to take important photographs, not pretty photographs, and that's in in air quotes. Yeah. When I hang up the camera, I want to feel that I have made a meaningful contribution to the life and and conscience of our planet. Um, and I think when when I first stumbled on your site, that was a bit uh, and and looked through the initial photo series like the Kimberly um, and the East and West uh, Pilbara, I I was unclear of really how much change has occurred there because if you're not really knowledgeable about some of what's going on with mining in Australia with with environmental uh, degradation in Australia. You just look at these um, images you've captured of these beautiful remote uh, places, and number one, um, you don't know that there's been huge changes that's happened to these areas, and you're sort of capturing these moments before they slip away. And then number two, until you actually read and dig through your site, it's hard to realize some of the amazing hardcore, like you just talked about driving till 2 a.m., but even more so going out in the field, waiting for weeks for the right light, going and, and wading through terrain where you're, you're maybe thinking something bad is going to happen to me, um, dealing with really hostile uh, environmental conditions. And I guess sort of for the, for the next, uh, next question I want to ask, it's could you tell us a bit about um, 
um, the, the changes that uh, have been going in these, in these areas of Australia, in the Kimberley, uh, in East and West Pilbara, and, and why you've wanted to, to, to capture them, and then also a little bit of what went into capturing them. So how have they changed? Why did you personally want to capture them? And, and what, what, what effort and, and hard work did you have to go through to do that? Yeah, so when I started with the camera, it was as, as you said at the start, it was about taking beautiful photographs. And then that didn't feel like it was rocking the boat after a while because you sort of get to a point where you've, you're producing good quality stuff and um, all of a sudden just producing good quality stuff doesn't become enough of itself. So... Um, and that's when, in the context of the landscape stuff, I moved from trying to take beautiful stuff to trying to capture places that were changing rapidly or disappearing. And um, so I moved away from um, trying to, um, you know, essentially follow the light to picking locations that I felt were important for one reason or another and then capturing those in the best light that I possibly could, um, which is can be quite challenging because if you take the former approach, you know, anyone can – if you get a nice piece of sunlight on a beer can, you can make the beer can look amazing. Um, but when you just pick a location and it is what it is and at the time, you have to wait for that light to sort of come to you and – um, and so that was a journey that I started on. And, and I think the first image that I took, which is um, one of the ones I think that I sent you, was uh, an image that took me 17 days. And I, it was, you know, it was above 40 degrees every day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, I was 120 kilometres out of Newman, I think, which is a town in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. And, and um you just sit there and you'd, you'd wake up early in the morning because the flies would be smashing you right. or the, the sun would get you and then the heat gets you and then you, you, don't, you can't stay in bed. Right. And then you've got to grind out the day and then often in the afternoon you get storms and, and it's when you get the storms that you get the light but often you'll get the storms without the light. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and you had to pick these, you know, you had to just scope this location out so that if the light happened then you'd be in a position to get an image. So I, uh, with that first one, I, I got to the stage where I, was, I gave myself another three days because it was March and I decided that the weather was changing and that if I didn't get in the next three or four days, the, the weather window was changing and then I'd miss out for that year. And I think three days before I'd given myself that um, artificially or that deadline, um, there was a storm come in one afternoon. I thought it didn't look like much, but I, made, I, I thought, well, put myself in position so if something happens, I can grab it. And I got the most amazing um, two blocks of light. One are just an incredible rainbow, and then just before sunset, um, or the last five minutes of sun before sunset, the, the the light hit the the mountain that I'd come to photograph, and it was it was really really amazing. And um, so that, that got me started. And then often you'll get three or four good days of light. And so the next night I was able to shoot down to another important place, a place called Giles Point, and, and I got a really nice image there as well. And, um, and so after that I just 
you know, that's that's basically how I got started doing that. Because the thing about it is now is that it's not enough just to take beautiful images because anyone can do it. And when people are milking Photoshop and whatever other mediums to artificially enhance images, people have become used to seeing beautiful images so they don't really sort of cut through anymore. So yeah. in, it's, it's my view that you need to be doing... So, you know, it's not just an image you get judged on now or will be judged on going forward. It's going to be a body of work. And as, is that body of work significant in its own right? And so that's the attitude that I've taken. And for these regions, um, uh, and, and we're sort of seeing this in the States with large uh, national parks uh, being opened up by the, the Trump administration to developers, What's been happening to these this sort of the image that I think uh, uh, of the outback of this just this huge untouched sort of wilderness or or vastness without end? What what has has mining or development? Uh, how has it affected places like the Kimberley or East and West Pilbara? Yeah, so Australia is a big a big area. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so I think it's the sixth sixth largest country in the world, um, and we've got a fairly limited population relative to countries of equivalent area. You know, I think Ghana Ghana has the same population of Australia in the area of the size of Victoria, which is you know I think it's just about as well. I think Victoria is no, it's the second smallest state here. Um, but mining in places like the Pilbara is devastating the region, and um, you know, the easy answer is to blame the mining companies and all of that, but the yeah. the, the problem is more, you know, the problem is owned by us all because there's just too many people on the planet and it's that population that's driving all the, all the mining development in northern Australia or in outback western Australia in particular. And, you know, these mines are massive. The, the average person has absolutely no idea and it's only when you're, spend a lot of time in these places like I do that you get to see what's really, really happening. Um, but the question then becomes what's the solution because it's easy to attack the symptom, but then what's the solution? And, you know, until we do something about how many people are living on this planet, the um, pulling back on that mining is going to be very, very difficult to um, to do. Yeah, the um, the Club for Rome was something I stumbled upon that I – uh, and more and more interested in that was uh, uh, MIT Danella Meadows was one of the lead proponents and, and uh, it had some of the people I believe um, uh, the writer of the population bomb and they met and they they this is in um, the 60s and then the, again in, in the late 90s just to calculate the amount of resources that, that could be used before we would um, enter the point where they couldn't be uh, renewed. Um, yes. So things like fishing stocks, lumber, things like that. And um, what I really like about uh, your photography is it um, does address this and raise an issue. Whereas, um, let's say if I'm going to uh, Japan and I'm looking at Japanese Instagram and yeah. I go to... Uh, look at a woodworker because I'm uh, for my home, I'm looking to decorate with Japanese furniture. Well, I'll yeah. see this beautiful, um, 
Japanese piece of furniture, but what I won't know because very few photographers are doing the work or perhaps because they know they have to be very good at what they do to raise a criticism um, or to raise a, a red flag is showing that Japan, for a lot of its forest production, they chop down a lot of their forests to yes. plant uh, lumber, um, trees that were best for lumber. And so when you go to the Japanese wilderness now, it's a monoculture which has, yes. has really decimated their uh, their natural forests, their natural biodiversity, had horrible effects on erosion. Um, in Taiwan, where I'm located, uh, you know, Japanese people, some of the things they'll do is they'll just go look at trees, and they'll just be amazed that there's all these different trees. So, yes. so going back to your point, it, it is, I think, really imperative, um, number one, to capture places like the Pilbara or the Kimberley, the Pilbaras and the Kimberley, where people um, might look at it and go, well, there's nothing there. And, and maybe that's part of your point where you're saying, right, but everything else has something. Why don't yes. we just have places where there's nothing, where yeah. it's, it's just left completely untouched? And then also to, to really call attention to the fact that the the... the the computer screen that you're looking on was made from metals that had to be pulled from the earth. The chairs you're sitting on had to be made with uh, wood pulled from the earth. Um, these sorts of things, I think, if you talk about them, you can come across as as a bit um, spooky to a lot of people because they, they don't like to think about these things. But perhaps approaching them, and you've seen this with photography, um, is is more effective. Um, yes. or is a bit easier for people to digest some of these very hard truths? Yeah, um, biodiversity is an interesting point because I analogize it to the human body. There's a lot, of organized, a lot of organs in the human body that we don't know or don't feel probably that does a lot, you know. Mm. But every, every component in the human body, and let's, and let's say the Earth's a, a, a system as well, every component in that system plays a part and you can keep chopping out parts of that system for a period and then there's a catastrophic breakdown mm. and the catastrophic breakdown is more likely to be reached when you don't understand what the role each part plays is so right. and that's my you know so you could take off an arm you could take out a kidney you could take out your pancreas you could do whatever and you could take, take taking it out and then at some point the body's going to shut down and that's what we're doing to the planet and um you know we're, we're getting to a tipping point you know the, the big the buzzword at the moment is um, climate change and all of that sort of stuff but i never hear anyone talking about habitat destruction or any of that sort of stuff and right. to me that to me that's equally important sure um it Wendell Berry talks a lot about things where he talks about the, the two economies and that yes. uh, Wendell Berry's writing, I, every time I try to describe it, I realize I'm not as smart as Wendell Berry, but <laughs> essentially what, what he was saying is things like um, that uh, the earth really is, everything else is secondary to the earth, that yeah. the, when you look at something like topsoil, and try to define it. Mm. Um, Topsoil is not neither alive nor dead. It's this very mm. strange mixture of millions of microorganisms living, dying, breathing, interacting with one another um, in a way that 
the best chemists, the biggest agro businesses, uh, people who have billions of dollars to throw at this uh, can't can't figure out. Um, and uh, it's certainly something that I think um, is problematic in in um, drawing people uh, drawing people's attention to the fact that these 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 big picture things like like climate change um, are just part of of a larger issue that we need to face in terms of how we interact with the earth how we treat the earth and how to put sort of the great economy the 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 global community we're all part of secondary to the actual economy yes. and that um there's sort of a um, a strange uh, and, and fatalistic logic in a lot of these economic systems where um, once you reach a breaking point in a system, it can't replenish itself. Yes. Um, but um, it's, it's certainly something that I think is really, um, how, is, how has this been received in Australia? And then how has your, your work made an impact in, in drawing people's attention to the fact that, you know, the mining money is nice, but there's another bill we have to pay at the end of the day, separate from the the economic uh, the economics. It's not something I've really focused on the last few years. Um, mm. I'm I'm fundamentally I'm just doing the thing. Um, sure. The challenge, another big challenge we have, and it's not just Australia; it's around the world, is um, urbanisation. Right. And when you get that urbanisation, people have less interaction with the natural environment. When they have less interaction with the natural environment, they understand it less. When they understand it less, they become more prepared and more prone to destroy it because, you know, they don't realise how everything's interrelated. So, um, and that's a challenge we have in Australia, the awareness of what's really going on um, uh, as against, um, you know, the, well, where people, the, the, the perceptions and beliefs of people versus what's really going on are completely different. And um, right. I don't know what the way, you know, I, I don't know how that's going to be resolved. I, I can't see it being resolved. I think what you're doing is, is very interesting. It, it reminds me of uh, Evgeny Morozov, who is, is one of the leading critics of sort of the internet can solve all our problems, uh, really pushing back on that notion. Um, yes. He talks about something, I think it's called hostile design, something along those lines, where yes. let's say, for example, I have a phone charger. Now, when I charge my phone, no, normally now I just plug it into a wall. I have no idea how much voltage is going into yes. it. I'll yes. leave yes. it in there well past it being charged, draining electricity that needs to be powered uh, by a power plant somewhere. So yeah. what, what hostile design sort of does is it makes you face uh, these usage choices and makes you more uh, cognizant of them. So uh, in hostile design, what would be sort of the extension cord I have now, which is just sort of this lifeless, um, uh, boring thing designed to just sort of lay in the background, it would move like a caterpillar the yes. more electricity I, I was using. And, yes. and eventually it'd be, you know, wiggling back and forth in, in, in a crazy way when, when it, I'm just needlessly charging my phone when it's already full, uh, drawing sort of your attention to um, these issues. And these issues have sort of, when we look at the objects in our life, we become habituated to them. We don't think. Um, and Instagram is very much like that as, as uh, 
in the world of photography where we become so habituated to the hundreds of thousands of pretty images that are posted yes. every hour on that site that we are not interrupted to stop and think about how those images were sourced, the amount of resources that went into you know, a foodie photographer's uh, plate, where the fish came from, was it sustainably yes. raised? When I'm traveling yeah. and, and walking through uh, Paris, um, am I thinking about the amount of uh, electricity that goes into lighting the Eiffel Tower on that night? So yeah. we need more, I think, moments of, of, of hostility might be the, the wrong word, but we definitely need more interruptions in our mm -hmm. art and, and in, in these uh, platforms that sort of lull us into thinking that everything is fine, but not really revealing the the sources and the cost and the um, the uh, the well, I guess the cost we all have to pay for this beauty. Everything is fine because we we don't know when it won't be. Yes, yes, yeah, um, we don't. That's the big thing, you know. You feel for the generation coming through now, like. You know, it might even be our generation where there's going to be stuff goes wrong big time and um, and no one's going to be prepared for it. I mean, look, it is what it is, but, um, you know, the, the generation coming through now, they're on a hiding to nothing because they're going to um, – there's nothing sure if, if it doesn't reach us first that they're going to be have, have to face some serious adversity. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, a good transition to another – project I really liked it and again focuses on sort of this really important photography that's not the norm for for an Instagram where you went to the town of uh is it pronounced Roy Bourne how to say Bourne. and um you were you this is a quote um uh of just some of the people there from your site when working in Roybourne uh, raw born, there's, there was no such thing as a clock. Some weeks I'd go without barely making a photograph and interview. Other weeks would be far more productive. Persistence again was key. Turning up every day, knocking on doors, driving the streets of the town. Most of the people I photographed became friends. <laughs> One bought my car, another tried to match me with his daughter. Um, and that's a lovely quote uh, going into sort of your work ethic and, and maybe the dynamics of really small towns in Australia, but um, there's also a lot of hardship and adversity um, in this town, and it's not um, perhaps photogenic the way we think of it. Uh, we think of the term. Why did you choose Roborn, and 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 um, what brought you there, and what did you learn um, from this project? Yeah, so I was I was shooting in the Pilbara at the time. I've, you know, it's a book I've had going for a while, and the last. Um, Last three, four, five years, the weather systems have been a bit um, all over the place, and um, yeah. with this unusual—it um, was unusually warm. Um, there was a lot of mid-level cloud coming in, which was basically stuffing up the types of photos that I wanted to take out in the bush. And a friend of mine who worked in Rovan suggested that I might do a book on the town because it was changing rapidly and so I looked at the weather forecast and decided that it was going to be a bit of time before the weather right. hooked into patterns that I was hoping for 
if at all. And um, as it turned out, I spent six weeks there in um, Rayburn that first time. And I was staying with a friend, some friends in um, Dampier. And so each day I'd go out to um, Rayburn and I'd, um, I'd hunt for people and then I'd, if I found someone suitable, I'd interview them first and then I'd take their picture at the back, take some photos of them at the back end. And um, it just, you know, I, I, I got to 10 people that I'd done, then I got to 20 people and then 30 people and then 40 people. And um, I don't know how many times I went back. But, you know, it was an incredible place. It was one of Australia, you know, it's one of Australia's probably toughest towns or poorest towns is probably a better way of putting it and um these people a lot of them have gone through unbelievable hardship and um so to drill in and first of all you know um forensically start to sort of pull apart the town into people that you wanted to talk to and then um to forensically pull apart their lives um you learn stuff that's it's pretty confronting and um and so um, that's how that project came about. And, and once I've started on something, I generally finish it. I don't like to not finish something. Uh, and, and how do people end up there and what keeps them from leaving? What are some of the, the socioeconomic uh, dynamics going on in the town? Yeah, so it's one of the oldest towns in WA. It's um, in, in the north of uh, Western Australia. It's probably the oldest town. I think it was founded around 1861. Um, you know, most of the population's Aboriginal. Um, on the with the Aboriginal side of the population, you've got all these sort of complex issues. Um, um, fundamentally, when when we rolled up, the the European people rolled up. Um, we brought about a lot of disease. There was a lot of conflict um, between white and black in those early days. Then the process of assimilation started to be you know, commenced, and I know assimilation is not a popular word, but that's what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then there was a sort of a period where you know they didn't have the rights that the European people had, and then they they were given um, the minimum wage was brought in in the 1960s. A lot of the Aboriginal people at that time were still living out, out and working on the stations. And what the minimum wage did was um, it, it meant that those people who had been working on the stations could no longer work there. Because what used to happen was that you might have, for example, in a family you might, of 10, you might have one or two of those men working and then the station owners would provide for the other eight as well, so give them food and blankets and clothing and all of that. Right. And when minimum wage was mandated, the station owners largely couldn't afford to um, pay all of that. And so the, um, the, all these Aboriginal families came into the towns. And in Aboriginal culture, you've got all these um, um, rules of kinship and the like, who you can associate with, who you can't. And so all of a sudden you had all these different language groups being thrown into the one town, and if you can think of a, 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 a cake mix in a bowl with all these ingredients, all of a sudden that gets mixed up and all these rules go out the window. So their society broke down in a major way, um, and roughly about the same time um, um, they were put on welfare. And um, they, had, they had money, nothing to spend it on. 
um, drugs and alcoholism became rife and the cultures never recovered from there. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what the solution is to sorting it out because it's, it's an absolute mess. Um, and you've got a whole generation we had, you've had generations from that culture, which is an ancient culture grow up, uh, on welfare and effectively getting money for jam, money for nothing. Right. So, to, to instill a work ethic into them because they want to bring them into our world. Um, yeah. It's a huge transition, a huge jump to make. And, and what are, are some of the, the thoughts you have about that, that transition? Is that something uh, or what are the dynamics going on with that conversation? Are there people saying, well, why should they have to come into this society that, that colonized uh, their land in the first place. Why can't they just continue to to live a, a life apart? Or is there a sense of, of the, the moral thing to do is to try to bring them in? Or is it a bit of maybe trying to deal with the guilt of the colonization in the first place? The idea that if we can bring the population into um, the, the mainstream, then it absolves us of sort of our, our original sin. Um, it's a complex issue, but I, I'd love to hear a, a bit of your thoughts uh, about it or maybe perhaps what some of the people there uh, had to say when you chatted with them. Yeah, so the, the problem you've got is that most 80% of Australian um, Australia's population is loca are located in urban environments, so they don't get out, they don't have any interaction with Aboriginal people whatsoever. Right. And you've got this sort of... Um, in my view, a misplaced guilt hanging over them and they want to fix it. Mm. But the reality is those people have to give up nothing and they don't understand the complex dynamics that are going on in that culture. Mm. The, second thing, the second thing is that um, the Aboriginal people can't have it both ways. Mm. And that would be the ideal world that they could have it both ways, but they can't. Um, you know, they were fundamentally hunters and gatherers, um, that knew the land better than probably anyone's ever known it. And you, you, I see that now when I go out with, with Aboriginal people. Their, their instincts in the bush are just unbelievable. Right. But the flip side of all of that is that they've become used to certain things that um, they like. So right. they like us food, tastes good. Um, yep. They don't have to go out and hunt for it right. so it's easy they like um watching television and videos and all of that sort of stuff yeah um they like the comfortable houses yeah um, they like driving around in motor cars right so the moment you start heading in that direction you start leaving behind in the rear rear vision mirror that place from where you've come right and it's very, very hard to go back because they go, they've tried, they try going back for a period and then they miss the comfortable houses in town, they miss the television, they miss the, um, you know, the videos, they miss the, diff they miss the easy, sweet tasting food, all of that type of stuff. And so um, the reality in my view, and there'll be some that would disagree with this, is the only end for all of this is going to be assimilation, which is going to be, which is really tough. Um, and these people have done it really hard, and you know, and I've I've lived on the coal face with these people, and I've had 
I've had a young girl of six or seven or eight walk into my office and asking to stay with me a night because her father was drunk and he was belting up her mother. And I had to say no to this girl because I knew that if I did that, that would compromise, um, A, my position where I was, um, and that ultimately that would be worse off in the community because then I wouldn't be able to do anything to help anyone. Right. So it's it's a really, really complex thing that, you know, um, in the urban environments, people walk across a bridge or they do whatever and they think that, you know, they've actually done something, but they haven't. You know, difficult decisions need to be made in this field probably to help the generation coming through because you, you're not going to save most of the existing generation. It's going to be the ones behind that you've got to sort of try and help. Right. And and did you begin to see sort of some of these uh... – is Roeborn a town you think that will offers a, a good case study of ways forward, or is that more a town that when this generation passes, so too will Roeborn? It, it will sort of fade uh, into, the town, into non-existence. The town's not going to fade into non-existence, but um, you know the the existing generation there has done it tough and. Um, right. A lot of stories there and, um, you know, I interviewed a woman that had been jailed for 16 years for murdering her husband because he used to bash her and I interviewed a guy that used to work on the hydrogen bomb and the um, atomic bomb testing in the Central Pacific and um, I interviewed a, a guy that had lost um, four of his family to mesothelioma, asbestosis. I met a, I interviewed another um woman that had lost her baby in tragic circumstances. Um, I interviewed another guy that had come out of Lebanon um, and, yeah, he was still carrying the scars of that. Another guy that had um, lost his sister or brother in a road crash and, and um, had to literally put the, the body parts back together um, because he was lying right next to them waiting for someone to come and rescue them, you know. Uh, it's, there's some pretty tough stories in there, some very, very tough stories. Yeah. And 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 for the, the sort of... Um, to, to go back briefly to the, the platforms that we, we're encountering your work on, so some would be through your website, some would be through modern channels like an Instagram... Um, why why is it important to to you think see those images or or for you why was it important to capture them and to at least uh have the ability for an audience to see them um oh, look, why, the biggest the yeah, big thing please. for me is the big thing for me it's about capturing aspects of our world that are changing so right Roeburn's a place a town in rapid transition and um i wanted to capture some of that before you know the 21st century took over sure um, ultimately nothing's important um when you sit out in a hill in the pilbara um and you see fossils that are 3.5 billion years old that's the earliest life forms on earth that have been known to man mm. um if you analogize that to a 60-minute documentary film and, and, and life on Earth started, say, 3.6 billion years ago and, and we've got this um, – and, 
And then you bring humans along. Human beings come along in the last half second of that 60-minute documentary. So human yeah. beings human beings are nothing as a race, let alone um, who we are in, as individual people. And if you average out that we live till 80 years, yeah. we're nothing. And so sure. ultimately nothing's important. All you can do is that which feels important. And what feels important to me is capturing this stuff. I don't know why it's important. It just feels important. Sure, sure. It reminds me of that uh, old uh, George Carlin. You, you ever see the comedian George Carlin? No. Well, he had this line. At, towards the end of his life, he became sort of a radical. Made a lot of money when he was younger, doing like uh, Letterman and, and Jay Leno. But he had this line where he was talking about people saving the planet. And he goes, the planet's been here, like you were saying, you know, for, for uh, six well, billion the, years. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the planet's going to be fine. It's the people that are fucked. You know, yes. the, the planet is going to, uh, it's going to be fine. It's going to recover. It'll shake yes. us off, as he said, like a bad case of fleas. Yeah. Um, and um, it's, it's uh, I think, important to sort of uh, know that it, it um, I, I think at least for Americans, uh, especially, part of the reason that I am wanting to introduce people to different artists and different perspectives uh, is because Americans, particularly, I, I can't speak for Australia at the moment in terms of its zeitgeist, but there's a real obsession with everyone having to have their individual meaning. Every individual person has to be important and, and has to yes. matter and has to... Uh, have sort of a place in the world and the, we really forget a lot of times um, number one the amount of resources that we have to consume to, to do these things but also uh, or to you know to have these objects of status or, or place of status or live in and maintain these huge cities but it's it's very interesting to this uh, this project and then to I'll transition to, to the, the final project I'd like to talk to you about today. But it's really interesting to me, this idea of, of not only capturing these changes, but also giving a voice that is very um, uh, uh, egoless, is how I would yeah. say when I look at some of your photography, even when we look at the earlier landscape series, to go to a, a, a place that vast and that old, where you can literally pick up like a fossil with the oldest life forms on Earth, this yes. vast expanse of land that goes on for as far as the eye can see, maybe in a very healthy way, um, helps communicate that message that, that your individual story is not important compared to the, the far bigger one or the far bigger stories uh, that are occurring. Yes. Um, so to... To, to move on to the final project I'd want to discuss, um, uh, it's the Cruelest Earth Project, and I'll just begin reading a snippet from the website. This project is my interpretation of the lives and stories of 30 million people around the world that all have their own aspirations and dreams, a group of people that most in the developed world have never heard of, people earning often less than U.S. $1 a day and working in some of the most dangerous conditions imaginable. It is a story that needs, in my view, to be told because they give us cause to reflect on the direction of our own lives and the serendipity of chance that determines to whom and where we are born. Um, so it's, it's a huge project. Can you give us a general introduction to 
um, the cruelest earth, um, how it came about and where you are now. Yeah, so um, back in 2006, I did a trip to Africa, one that I nearly didn't do. Um, and I was, um, I nearly handballed the trip to a mate. Yeah. And when I did that first two-week trip, I um, saw all these people mining beside the roadside, and I was fascinated. I was fascinated by the visual picture when I just of Africa generally for the first trip. And um, I did another trip back in 2008. That was a six-week trip, taking in more, multi, more countries. Um, and then 2010, I, I ended up spending four months, I think, in West Africa, and um, back in around 2010, I decided to do a book on these miners. And at the point, in, at that point, I'd no sort of idea how um, big the project would be, or how long it would take, or how I'd even do it. I just knew it would be hard. Right. And um, so I just got <laughs> I got started, and and I I travelled to Burkina Faso in November December 2010. And I, I don't know how long I spent there. I took a videographer with me, um, and that was the start. And and since then, I've um, on that project specifically, I've um, I've, so I've shot Burkina Faso, a place you really it's become much more difficult now because of extremist groups. Um, 2012 was. Um, a volcano in Indonesia. 2013 was the coalfields eastern India. 2015 was the high altitude miners northern Pakistan. 2016 was um, the silver miners in one of the world's most dangerous mountains in Bolivia. Um, and then last year I shot um, guys mining sand or diving for sand and for the building construction industry in Cameroon. And in in amongst all of that, I've shot a other heap of other countries on the project as well. So. That's how it came about. The the objective of the project is to um, I want to capture um, a, a variety of commodities, so gold, silver, coal, sulphur, tin, um, salt, um, whatever else. There's other stuff in there. Uh, sand. I've got you know stone. Mm. Um, I want to do it in a variety of topography. So the high mountains, the deserts, the tropics, savannah, the Arctic, um, and I also want to do it in a variety of cultural environments as well. Right. So, um, it start, so it started out with simple things, and it just seems every, um, every location gets more difficult than the one before. Right. Um, it's, it's certainly something that... Um, I mean, the, the undertaking of, of the project is, uh, I'm surprised that there's not two or three of you. I mean, it's, it's, it's really incredible that this is, there's one, there, I know obviously you have a team and helpers and fixers, but it's one person going around and photographing these things. Um, what, what are some of the stories you've discovered and what's the big picture that you're, you're trying to, to show, um, with this project? What, what are some of the stories of the people pulling these things from the earth? Um, and, and what are you trying to say by putting these stories together? Yeah, so the first aspect is it's very, it's totally not a political 
exercise. Um, mm. You know, if I was to distill down my takeaway from having shot these people, it would be that these people are exactly the same as us. So part of the byline is man's quest for a better life. And, you know, you'll get a million people out there saying this is horrible, this is terrible. Um, but most of these people are choosing to do what they do. And they're choosing to do what they do so they can earn more income, they can buy a house more quickly, they can buy a car, or they can do whatever it is they want to do. Um, right. so, and they put their kids in better education so that they get ahead more quickly. So they're sacrificing the life, the life that they have now for the life that they could be living. And if you think back to what we do in the West and the developed world, that's exactly the same way that we live. We work in, a, in office environments 68 hours a week. We have cleaners working 68 hours, a, 60 to 80 hours a week. Right. And almost every single one of those is trying to get ahead of the other of the rest of the population to get to where they want to go. And so when you realise that and you say, right, oh, these miners are exactly the same as us, they're just doing it in a more brutal and more difficult environment. Yeah, that, that is something that um, is it's really, there's a lot of, um, hmm, I think, uh, selling out of the of the present for the future, uh, yes. both. But in terms of uh, environmentalism, it's the opposite. We're selling out the future for the for the present. <laughs> so you yes. have these two sort of uh, paradoxical forces working together to to cause a lot of the problems we're facing uh, today. Um, yes. One of the things that I think best uh, encapsulates uh, some of the risks you're taking. Uh, you talked. You talked about terrorism groups. Uh, I'm sure you know numerous uh, uh, dodgy uh, logistics, transportation, hotels. But there was a story in particular that appeared on the the site where you talk about going down. I believe it's. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's either a silver or gold shaft in yeah. Africa, and and you describe it as sort of something they said that they'd never seen a white man ever do or attempt. What, what yes. was that, that story and, and why did you feel that you had to go through this, this very, very dangerous experience for the, the stories uh, you're trying to tell? Yeah, so that was on that first trip back in 2010. We'd been photographing these um, artisanal environments. Yeah. Um, and the big pointy end of what they did was was not above ground it was underground and and i just felt that you know if i'm going to capture this thing that they did properly then i needed to be down in their environment with them and that meant going down a big hole and you know i thought about it for days and days because i was i was nervous as hell um i hadn't made a decision as to um whether to do it or not and I was, you know, it was, it was a 50-50 call as to whether I did it because, you know, the perception was it was quite dangerous because um, people die down these holes, um, they collapse, there's dangerous gases, whatever you want to say. And so we ended up buying a big thick bit of rope at a local market and um, we found um, an artisanal work and we said, look, we went, to, we spoke to the people, it was all in French and... and um, I decided to do it and it was one of the scariest things that I'd ever done in my life and 
um, went down at 32 metres straight down the hole. And, um, you know, they had footholds in, in either side of the shaft, so you sort of crab walk down the hole. Yeah. And then... Feet, feet and arm. Are you doing feet and arms as you're going down with sort of your gear strapped to your chest? How, what, how are no, you crab walking? One of the miners carried my gear down for me, and then I worried about hanging on. And um, yeah, so it was feet and arms sort of, yeah, crab walking down this shaft is probably, I'm guessing, probably a bit over a metre wide, a bit over a metre square. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it was pretty pretty full on, very full on. Yeah. And, and, and why did you put your – so you put yourself through that with the idea of, okay, if I'm here and this is the how they mine, I have to tell this story – what for them? What was their perception of you after you had done that, or yeah, was so, there? How, yeah, did, how? What was the result? Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, they'd never seen it. Most of them had never had a white bloke come through where they were. So, um, that not only had they not had a white bloke go down one of their holes, they'd never had a white bloke come to their working because they literally we were kilometres off the road. Um, we drove down a um, series of bike and donkey tracks to get to yeah. where we did. And, um, yeah, then we had to negotiate to go down and, um, you know, Burkina Faso, you don't see many white people full stop, um, yep. apart from the mining, the large-scale mining environments. And then for a white bloke to come into one of these small-scale environments and then go down a hole was a bit sort of, it was very, very different for them. Right. Um, it's certainly something where, I think um, it'd be very interesting to when when this project is over for you to see the result of of not only um, what the, what your audience thinks. So people who who see this this uh, uh, the cruelest earth, I believe there's a documentary film in addition to a book. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, to not only see how they react, but then also to see. Perhaps uh, if there's some much-needed uh, energy devoted towards trying to uh, not only environmentally but also in terms of the the cruelty both to the earth and to the people who are having to get these resources, if there can be a bit of reform. Um, going back to your earlier point on climate change, it's interesting where you know people talk very abstractly about you know in 10 or 20 years it'll cause this or that or you know that that uh, the changes in climate change are uh, affecting food production in certain regions of of sub-saharan africa but to then actually hear also of of the cruelty that man is sort of actively inflicting uh, on man in these regions um, and the environment at the same time it, it's the, the thing that's most striking to me is, is uh, well, I guess it's good to ask, have you found a lot of allies who, even though they, they perhaps, it's a big problem, it's something they're saying, okay, we need to, to, to think about this because this is not something that should still be happening or this is not something that, that should remain silent, um, what's going on in these regions? Yeah, you know, I don't know what the... Um I, I don't know what uh, – like, I'm not fighting for an outcome with the project sure. as such. Um, sure. So, and, yeah, like, 
for me, these are people, um, they're people going about their daily life and, and um, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know what's going to come of it. You know, it's, it's, it feels important, but I don't know why it's important. Maybe it's something that a lot of people can get a lot of different um, yes. outcomes from. Um, and, and certainly, uh, it seems like for you that, that your instincts are a huge part of, in the work you do. Um, I'm wondering if, if there is anything you could, you could tell us before, um, we conclude about, about your influences or how you are, um, making sure you're staying true to yourself through either your research or, or other photographers that you work with or other individuals you work with. Is there a source for some of your thinking and, and how your thinking's developed? Any reference points or any um, fellow uh, individuals you could point us to? Um, yeah, look, that's early days I had some influences on my photography. Kerry Walensky was one out of Boston. He's one of the best photographers National Geographic's ever produced. I had a... a Guy here in um, Western Australia, Richard Waldenorp, who was big on um, aerial photography. And one of the things I learned from Richard was, uh, or being associated with Richard, was to, when you pick a course, stay that course over a long period of time. Because most people flip, flip and flop between different things. So right. I made it, made it a, um, I made it a, um, I suppose, a goal of mine to pick some topics and then follow them through from a, over a long period of time. Sure. Um, as for the philosophical basis behind my work, um, um, that's evolved mainly from observation, what I see, then I process it, then I see more, I process more, and um, it's a combination of instinct and feel, but I suppose instinct is honed as well by um, observation and first-hand knowledge as well. So... Yeah, the, the, the perspectives I have, all of that type of stuff, they haven't come from books. They've just come from, you know, what I've seen and learned and, sure. and my reality. Sure. Um, and then lastly, if, if people want to connect with you, support you or, or support your work, um, where can they do that and how can they do that? Yeah, look, um, just first of all, if they could follow me on Instagram, that would be great. Um the Instagram account is H Brown official. So H B R O W N official. Mm. Um, and then they can also go to my, uh, the cruel earth website, which is www.cruelestearth.com.